0: Hello class and hola Profea Viña. I am Alana Vasquez, or Itzel, and I will be responding to the 13th documentary questions based off the documentary 13th on the incarceration system in the United States of America. And the following questions I will be answering are gonna be, how did you feel after viewing 13th? Did you feel helpless, inspired, start to action or a combination of all three? And do you think the message of the film was ultimately helpful? Why or why not? Second question is, This documentary emphasizes that the current crisis of mass incarceration is directly tied to our country's legacy and history of slavery. By showing how slavery shifted to the convict leasing, to Jim Crow segregation, to the war on drugs, Thirteenth argues that systems of oppression are durable and they often reinvent themselves. As Angela Davis stated in the film, historically, when one looks at efforts to create reforms, they inevitably lead to more repression. What are ways you can end this cycle? What do you think are some of the factors that allowed the system of racial control to simply evolve and replicate itself for the past 150 years? And how can you become more vigilant against institutional racism? Third question is, how did it help to repay these communities and families in a more material, restorative way? Why or why not? So, wow, that was uh, quite a lot to unpack. Um, I'm just gonna start probably towards the top and then I know I'm bound to go off of tangents, so. So, starting off kind of by the first one about how I feel after viewing this, it was very, I'm gonna say it was it was a hard watch in the terms of it was graphic at some times, but I felt like it was necessary because we were talking about this in class, how it's not common knowledge, but at this point it should be the things that were discussed about how the prison system is so intertwined with our government, well, it's intertwined with our government, but how the, the, the shift in our criminal justice system has taken place, how you know different administrations like under presidents, under Nixon, Reagan, Clinton, you know how these mass um, institutions have changed over time and how the language has changed, but the ultimate sentiment of racism and disproportionately affecting affecting black communities and communities of color has always prevailed it's just the language has changed and later I'll get into a quote um it was from Nixon's advisor it wasn't the Ehrlichman quote I feel like that's part of it but there was a quote talking about how um I think I highlighted it it was a quote talking about how it's like you can't just say the n-word flat out anymore this is like this was made in the 60s like how you know they made it illegal to do this but then now then you start talking about like echoing up. oh it was um, i don't remember sorry it was part of the reagan administration about how he used like to get like the southern vote was it the reagan it was the what's it called the reagan and nixon administrations with their like war on drugs thing um, what's it called? Like, oh, yeah, it was it called the Southern Strategy. And that, yeah, was under Reagan. It was like, you can't just say the N-word anymore. That's like illegal or anything now. And then it goes on to you start talking about states' rights and then eventually economic policies. And their goal was always, always, always to harm communities of color. It was never to replace them. So, yeah, yeah. And with all of these emotions came a very strong, um... It came a very strong feeling of being stirred to action. Yeah, that's what it is. Being called to action. And I'd say being, I wouldn't say being helpless was something I felt because i had always kind of known, well okay, I didn't always know, but more, especially more recently, I had known the, uh, the extent of these institutions on society, like their impact and how intertwined everything was. But you know, it's still astounding to see when it's, especially when this place right in front of you. And I still think everybody should see this. This is, Like, everybody should know how intertwined these are, because a lot of people don't. And I feel like if they did, it would change um, quite a bit. Uh, (laughs) And, like, the amount of exploitation that has gone under the 13th Amendment specifically, because, like, even traveling back to the Reconstruction era, right after, you know, Lincoln's presidency, or, you know, right after he was, like, assassinated, and then Ulysses Grant took over... In the reconstruction and after the 13th amendment was introduced you know there was that loophole that you know that basically slavery is unethical well not of course it's unethical but it's illegal unless you're a criminal and at that point you know right after that had been um put like put ratified sorry (laughs) right after that had been ratified It was the southern economy was in shambles because slavery was ultimately an economic system, eh, economic system. And this 13th Amendment loophole was exploited. There were mass incarcerations followed and what's it called? There were people who literally chased um, formerly enslaved people, like slave owners would chase their former slaves up in the north to try and get them back to work for them. And it called they had to provide the labor to rebuild, like in these mass incarcerations, and how they were captured back. And this is where the myth of black criminality came from, ultimately, because they wanted these people back to work for them, obviously for free and how the house slave turned to evil depictions. And what's it called? Later in 1915, there was this, um, was, I don't forgot if it was specifically 1915, but that's when the KKK revival was by Nathan Bedford. No, he started the KKK. That was when um, William Joseph Simmons revived the KKK. Birth of a Nation confirmed white people's account of the Civil War and how every black person was basically aggressive. And it, yet again, reassured the black criminality myth. And it really enforced the, what's it called? The black men are rapists because white people needed work to do. Well, not, they enforced that stereotype because they needed these black men to work for them. And it, like I said, it attributed to the revival of the KKK. Um, The idea of burning the cross actually came from the same movie because I forgot the director's name. But he was, uh, he was, he was like, he thought it would make a really good shot for like perspective and stuff. So he put it in and well, that's where they got the ideas from. So yeah, but ultimately, okay, that was a little off topic, but. Uh, I'm going to go on to question two now. So question two, like I discussed earlier, focuses on um, our country's history and legacy with slavery and how how it's evolved over time and how it looks now. And Angela Davis's infamous quote, well, okay, maybe not infamous, but her quote about reforms and how it eventually leads to more oppression. And then it kind of leads on into how you can change things now. So going back to the first part of the question as to how these forms of slavery have changed over time, and like I was going on earlier too about the Reconstruction era, after, you know, outward slavery was like made illegal, um, neo-slavery and forms of wage slavery became a thing because <laughs> you would have these people working for extremely low wages that it was just, you you weren't free, you were a slave to capitalism at that point. And quite literally, these people were chased back to become slaves. And that's where mass incarcerations, like I just talked about, these mass incarcerations led to more free labor. And um, that, led, you know, that eventually did lead to Jim Crow segregation. The war on drugs, which is under Nixon and Reagan's administration, but I will get to that later. And what's it called? It always evolves. Capitalism directly, like capitalism and slavery go hand in hand. Because capitalism requires something, someone or something to exploit. It's inherent to its nature. And, you know, that's just what America is built on. It's so fundamentally American capitalism. And Angela Davis, historically, okay, i on reforms now. Reforms and kind of this goes into why like capitalism too. So reforms are a very liberal thing, I'm going to be honest. Um, now in the modern times, a lot of people don't really know what a liberal is and how they define them. People use the terms liberal and leftist very interchangeably. A liberal believes in uh, a liberal believes in laissez-faire capitalism, in which there shouldn't really be any restrictions on the, the government should not interfere interfere with um, business, like basically saying like the market will regulate itself. Um, and leftists are different. Leftists align with either Marxist beliefs, you know, that's on the left on the left side of the political scale, whereas liberals, they are quite literally. They're, they're very different. Sometimes, sometimes I say this, they can have similar goals, but their way of achieving them is 100% different. Like, <sighs> so basically liberals, it's a form of like kind of bourgeoisie um, way of keeping, like maintaining the status quo. Like you want things to kind of change, but you ulti- but you want it to stay for yourself. Like you want, you don't want yourself, your, your place to shift at all. Like you basically want to protect yourself. So then when you have reforms, like, okay, yeah, so kind of going back, connecting back to Angela Davis' quote, when you do have reforms like, what was it, might have been under, it might, that's a very, might have been under the Clinton administration later when these forms of ankle bracelets were inter, um, introduced in like the late 90s, um, instead you have to think about are these ways of re- reform or are these manners that, move the prison that extend the prison system like is this really a form is is this a form of reform is this a manner of reforming something or is it just moving it somewhere else because at this point you've been trapped in your own home and ultimately all of these companies they profit off of getting those ankle bracelets they profit off of these prisons that's kind of that's how the prison industrial complex works and the prison industri- industrial complex is the relationship between um what's it called the government kind of protecting these, or like nurturing, really nurturing, nurturing these companies that privately own prisons and profit off of them, and they profit off of punishment, quite literally. Therefore, reform, this so-called form of re- this so-called form, of, this so-called epit- epitome of change, ultimately benefits those up higher, they benefit the corporations. Because if you look at what they're doing, they may say they want reform, but ultimately they don't. It comes down to their petty and greedy interests. In reform, at some points, it's too little to change. Like, um, let's think of one right now. Okay, well, you know, I'll use another Angela Davis example. Angela Davis wrote a book called "Our Prisons Obsolete? Whereas now a lot of people are really Um, obsessed. I wouldn't say obsessed with, but a lot of people now believe in the notion of defunding the police. I'm not. I'm not blatantly stating that I believe with that. I believe or align with any of these, but it's a very popular saying. So the difference between reforming the police and defunding the (laughs) police, the difference between defunding slash reforming, and you know, kind of doing away with that, it stems from the fact that you have to examine the history of the police as to how they were literally slave catchers first like that was their origin that was their sole purpose and now they've evolved or to uphold and support a criminal an inherently racist criminal justice system um so what's called so when you reform this you're still keeping that same like um institution in place you're just kind of you know you're i wouldn't say you're sugarcoating it a little bit but still that oppression still remains and and like the more time that goes on or okay this is how i perceive it the more time that goes on there is um, the more time that goes on, I guess the less intense people view the real problem is, or that's how I would like put it into terms of that. So and the reason why these keep happening, like I, this this type of reform, this very popular form of this very popular notion of reform keeps happening is because the people believe it. you know, the people love, love, love to believe reform, but sometimes they don't really acknowledge that sometimes what we need is radical change. Yet again, part of a larger conversation. So the factors that keep this going are corporate greed. I think that's very obvious when you look at the, the policies that allow corporations to flourish or, you know, ones that directly rely off of prison labor to flourish. And over the past 150 years, like the Southern strategy, like I mentioned earlier, under the Reagan administration, you get you first, you can't be racist. Right. You can't outwardly do it. So then you start start talking about states rights and then that leads to economic policies. And yet again, the goal remains the same. It is to keep purposely keep black and brown communities at the bottom. So you can't fulfill this so-called like this prized American dream. You can't really do it when every single barrier is up against you. Like, that's not really how it works. So I believe that being the most like eh, in order to be the most vigilant against um, in order to be the most vigilant against institutional racism, I think you need to be aware of it first. That is the most important step because you can't really fight something you can't see. You know, like that doesn't make any sense. And so many people don't see how institutional racism is like how prevalent it is and how it affects everyone. Oh, my God. Like the last podcast episode I did was on. Um, a case study on Chicana's testimonials and their impact of microaggressions on them throughout K through 12 schooling. That is an example against institutional racism. But that's, pro- that's you know, that was obviously focusing on the educational system. But this right here with Angela Davis and this entire documentary is focusing on the criminal justice system. So it sounded like law and order, but what's it called? You have to just be aware of it first. And that's why I think everybody should view this documentary or view something very similar to it because this history, I mean, it seems obvious now that's smacking you in the face, but it doesn't before because it's so concealed. Like, you know, we're not, I didn't learn most of this in my classes. Like the stuff that I knew from this documentary that I, the stuff I came in already knowing I had kind of found out through my own exploration and never been taught to me in a class before. I'm, I'm assuming it's because it's considered anti-American or whatever, but ultimately it's just our history in, in the inner workings of our country so yeah kind of elaborating on the criminal justice system it was weaponized and you know prison sentences in these political institutions are all weaponized really during the civil rights movement and oh my god a great example of that is martin luther king oh my god now, today, oh my, conservatives pretend to love him. Republicans, they say they love them. The white liberals, like, idolize him. But the reality is, in his own time, he was one of the most hated men in America. The majority didn't even agree with him. He was considered dangerous, you know, all of these things. And then yet now we idolize him. We don't know how, well, okay, no, we don't know. What I'm not, that's not what I'm saying. But it isn't popularized or really talked about how radical he was. You know, they always preach nonviolence, nonviolence, nonviolence. But like, they really don't even know what MLK's true values were. You know, he, he even stated that the evils of militarism are same are as like as dark as the evils of capitalism. They would never say that, and just the whitewashing of um, MLK goes crazy. <laughs> like that is very much something that they did, and they did the same thing with. Um, oh yes, yeah, so on MLK. Back to MLK. His assassination was very sketchy. Um, none of like the not none of them. A lot of the factors don't line up. Like, the angle in the window of where he was assassinated, it's, it's, it just doesn't add up. I, personally, I think it was, a, yeah. Anyways, um, on to the um, other leaders that were stopped or other groups that were purposely criminalized in, like, that were weaponized. Sorry, that were weaponized under the criminal justice system and the political systems at those times. The Black Panthers, great example. Huey P. Newton, he was assassinated in his own home. He was considered one of the most dangerous men in America. He was the leader of the Black Black Panthers. They were a revolutionary organization for for Black folk, right? And Angela Davis, oh my God, that woman. She went to trial, had to defend herself, and won. She actively defended herself because these civil rights activists were portrayed as criminals because what were they doing? They were rebelling against the government. Or, you know, yeah, they were just rebelling against the government. And so after the 1970s became the mass incarceration era under Nixon, Reagan. God, I hate Ronald Reagan. Anyways, but yet again, back to the criminalization. Angela, oh yeah, I already talked about Angela Davis. Um, But Asada Shakur, she had, she's currently in Cuba, stan her. She went on trial for um, a murder and there were so many people that stood with her. And, you know, like I said, she's currently still in Cuba and there were other revolutionaries who had the same capital. I forgot his name, unfortunately, but he united white people, brown people, um, Asians. Like he united many different diverse groups of people to see the inequalities in society. And he was at the age of 21. I don't know how I remember that. But yeah, he was 21. So uh, it's just viewing these all at once. Is something totally different than looking at it in my own exploration of where I'm viewing it in kind of elements Of course, they're not isolated occurrences. I know they're connected, but like viewing it all in one cohesive way is mind blowing because you don't realize how much it's webbed into your society until you look at it in a manner like that. On to Nixon and Reagan oh, and the war on drugs. Oh, so fun. Okay. So. I'm going to be going over this quote. I'm going to read it one more time. It goes, the Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. You understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to either be against the war um, or Black, but by getting the the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and the Blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. Nixon, Nixon, Nixon. <sighs> so he coined this term, the war on crime. In reality, this was a code word That pretty much meant the Black Panthers, Black liberation, and any opposition. So, like, you know, the hippies, too. And he really relied on respect of the law. But these laws targeted Black and brown communities. And this, like I said, the war on drugs. The deal with addiction, like, dealing with addiction was treated as a crime and not as a health issue. And the incarceration for, um, what's it called? For, like, coke? Cocaine. You know, crack cocaine. It was... You know exponentially higher for black people than it was for white people you know and yet again the more money you have the more the, the easier it is for you to evade jail or for you to evade um what's it called to evade incarceration and you know who had money the white people because always but anyways what's it called uh, he used nixon weaponized this war on drugs as an excuse to dis- to destroy the opposition, he like focused everything on, we need to fight this war on drugs. We really need to fight this. And then the Southern movement that I made, or the Southern movement that I was talking about earlier under the Reagan administration, the Southern movement, Nixon kind of started, but Reagan also perpetuated it. So I should have clarified that earlier. But with the Southern movement, he would convert Southern Dems like Southern, very staunch Southern Democrats to Republicans with very closet racist policies. Like, that. those are the economic policies that I was talking about earlier, really how they'd be like, oh, yeah, you just say can you talk about, you know, you. it's from blatant racism to states' rights to economic policies. Those are those closet racism that would really prevail. And uh, unfortunately, we are now on to the Reagan administration. So connecting back to the quote, how like what's it called you just you criminalize like you criminalize opposition or no well yeah you're basically criminalizing opposition it's kind of like a second wave of the sedition acts but when you get people to associate these groups like the black panthers and the anti-war left against the vietnam war when you associate them with these drugs hence that's how he that's effectively how he did execute the war on drugs campaign and he kind of succeeded in it, which is horrendous. But, ugh, God, I hate Nixon. But, yeah, sorry. That was kind of tangency. Yeah. But now, number five. Um, how do you think media and pop culture representations of Black Americans, particularly Black men, have contributed to a dangerous climate of white fear and anxiety? Oh, my God. Okay. So, let me just, sorry, I'm scrolling down in my notes. There was this case. Oh, it was uh, Dukaker's do du- 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 yeah, do du- K- Dukakis, K- du- K- du- Dukakis, K- du- Yes, Dukakis. Um, he was running, and he supported this weekend prison pass, where it was what's it called? Um, it was where inmates could visit. Inmates were like, yeah, sorry, inmates were kind of free on the weekends, or like they could visit on the weekends, right? And he well, he had a very staunch lead until, <sighs> until Horton, uh, he became a focal point. He was a focused black man criminal, and he was the stereotype. He was, and I, I am air quoting this, a black man rapist. And Bush was like, he kind of slid in and was like, I will be the savior. I will, he like effectively used the white person fear as a campaign strategy. He like effectively weaponized that, and that goes back down to the white theater anxiety. And then years later, there was a case of this boy. Um, it was Trayvon Martin. He was just... He was walking. Like, he was kind of... He was fine. Well, he was doing fine. And then he was... Um, what was it called? He was eventually assassinated by another man when he was already told not to... This was in Florida, by the way. He was told not to pursue. He did. Um... And what's it called the the man who shot him was protected under the Florida Stand Your Ground law, which, um... Uh, it it really works. On, it really only works in one way, because it if the Stand Your Ground law, if Trayvon Martin was to invoke the same thing, it would not like it would not end in the same way. This was Zimmerman, yes, Zimmerman, 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 and. The standard ground law states that you can kill if you feel threatened. Like I said, he was specifically ordered not to follow, uh, they and he was not convicted. Like, was he convicted or was he only given... The point is, his punishment was very, very little. And, yeah, eventually there was a Central Park 5 case that came along. It was five men that were coerced into confessing because they said, like, they, they police coercion, how they were told they could go home and do all of these things. And in reality, they just confessed to a crime they didn't do. Because later, a case we talked about was Khalif. Um, he was stopped and falsely accused and put on $10,000 for bail, which, oh my God, that's extraordinary. And the fact that it was a very petty crime, like a very small crime. In the, like, it was he was falsely accused as well. And this large of a bail... Like, so this just proves if you can pay that $10,000, you're basically free. So in this country, it's only a crime for the poor because of, I mean, if, like I said, if you can pay the bail, then I guess you're free, right? But he was offered a multitude of plea deals because if, if everybody had a trial, this is just a fact in the entire, like in the US criminal justice system, if everybody had a trial, the justice system would literally collapse. It could not handle the influx of trials and the justice system, it would just go, it would be in shambles. And that's why plea deals are made all the time it's basically like the courts were punishing you and making you um into a bad person by having you wait if you did want to trial like that was their form of punishing you before and it like it mentally screws you over and it tantalizes you with going home with the idea that you just have to kind of you know you have to confess to something you didn't do but you can go home and for Khalif specifically after three years his charges were dropped but unfortunately, two years after his own release, he killed himself in his own home. Um, this system is horrendous. It it messed with him. It, it made him very depressed. It was not, it was very detrimental to him. And it's just one case out of too many, like thousands, probably maybe in the millions now, probably like thousands or above, of where this criminal justice system is is not justice at all like justice too long uh what is the quote it's justice too long delayed is justice denied like there was no justice for him and this prison industrial complex of these private corporations and capitalism it eats brown people and it eats black people quite literally alive and then once you know even if you do make it out you're like you carry this charge this charge you carry this yeah carry this sort of scarlet letter around with you for the rest of your life you have to carry the fact that you were, I air quote this, convicted of a felony. And, yeah, you know, that follows you on loans when you're trying to buy a house, when you're trying to apply for jobs. And, you know, nobody wants to hire the ex-con. So it, it really follows you for the rest of your life. And, oh, yeah, that's that spiel on that. And challenging these instances of racism and dehumanization goes to contradicting, I think it, we need to start. Okay, no. I think everybody can start by it ed- how do i say this by looking at themselves and looking at their own personal bias that they hold and yet again educating yourself on the history of this country and how everything kind of interconnects and like the mi- your own microaggressions that you hold against others or you know your own in your own <laughs> your own form of like what's it called you're basically, you have to admit kind of your wrongs or your faults. And that is the first step in attacking the larger system. So moving on to the last question. So it is many politicians, including the Clintons, Newt Gingrich, and Charles Ringel in this film have, been apo- have apologized for their role in promoting devastating tough-on-crime legislation. Considering the billions of dollars made off the imprisonment of people, the ongoing practice of prison labor, and uh, what's it called? In the cases of unjust imprisonment of people... Unjust, sorry, unjust imprisonment, like Khalifa, I was just talking about, is—is it—is eh, an apology enough for this? Like, is our country compelled to repay these communities and families in a more material, restorative way? Why am I not? <sighs> so, an apology is not enough. These corporations and the government were working together, like Alec. Oh my, it was founded under the um, the Reagan administration. Of course of course it's just under reagan it, it, i i should have expected that but alec is um the american legislative the american legislative electoral council something like that right the american legis yes basically the yeah, they work together yeah the alleged <laughs> sorry the american legislative exchange council and they have members who are politicians and- from politicians and corporations, of course. So that means corporate lawmakers can vote. And Alec, this council, they write laws. They introduce corporatism into government. Um, Like, okay, a good example is Walmart. <sighs> Walmart benefited so much in, like, what's called? They capitalized so much off of the Stand Your Ground laws. Like, they were the biggest long gun seller. So then a- Alec made a lot of money for Walmart off of that by Stand Your Ground. And then, so, Alec Law, equal money for Walmart. But after the Trayvon Martin case in, like, in Florida, what I was talking about with Zimmerman, Walmart did leave. And that's when, like, the three-strike law, like, the infamous one that Bill Clinton proposed, that was also proposed by Alec. (sighs) And Alec also worked with uh, CCA. Uh, You know, of course they did. They get rakesh off punishment. Like... It was a private, they want to privatize it, like, and their whole system relied on the fact that you always have to keep people in, even if they're not committing crimes, to, you know, to keep making money. So, you know, what does Alec do to, to help their buddy CCA out? They pass laws that increase sentencing and criminalizing crimes, like, that keep that keep criminalizing petty things, so you can always keep people in the system. There always has to be someone there to exploit. So, SB170 oh my god okay this one has to do with immigration right SB170 was proposed by ALEC and it was CCA profiting off of detained immigrants detained immigrants in these detention centers in reality they're prisons I'm not even gonna lie they're prisons like calling up a detention center does not remove anything and this became the crimigra- the crimig- I cannot say it's a crimigration system of how it was criminalizing immigration and after you know the, the big spiel of this and how because uh, npr made a npr publicist publicized this so then cca left alec after it became publicized and then alec was like you know what we don't want to focus on social issues like okay but then you know alec goes on to try and privatize parole and bail because the american bail coalition is still part of alec despite cca so cca is just one component right but you know in our criminal justice system every time i say i think of law and order but there's just so much bigger things that are part of it like (sighs) so that means the prisons they're going to keep incarcerating people in their own communities through the use of ankle gps like i was talking about earlier about how reform like are you really trying to quote unquote reform or are you just relocating these prisons and keeping them quite literally like incarcerated in their own homes so you know they support alex supports this crime reform bill for money they say they want crime reform. They don't want it. They ultimately want money. They're that's what they do. Like that they're obviously capitalists. Like And then that also feeds into it's all part of the, the prison industrial complex. So with all of this down and going into all of this, like the amount of uh, damage the administrations have done, they each each of them blames the last. And You know, Bill Clinton. He is responsible for the militarization of police with his large expansions. Bush, don't you get me started? I already went on to Reagan and Nixon. But right, okay, Reagan. One thing on Reagan. He like either didn't do anything about a problem or exacerbated every single one that already existed. So that's that. That's Ronald Reagan for ya. But what's it called? An apology is not enough. Reparations are needed because these apologies don't take back the lives of people who were lost. It doesn't fix an apology, a simple apology doesn't fix um, the trauma inflicted upon these communities, the The amount of damage inflicted, the amount of the, the people that have been torn apart, the communities that have been torn apart by these, by this institution. Therefore, it's so much talk and not enough change, kind of like that's what an apology in that sense would convey. So an apology is simply just not enough. It's it's a, it's an a, you need to look bigger into the larger system and how and how capitalism really plays into every single part of this. Therefore, an apology is not enough and never will be enough to repay for the bloody history you, the United States of America has undergone in the last 150 years.